You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 198, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of Look at My Records, I chatted with Josh Mallerman of Detroit power pop band The High Strunk. These prolific indie rock veterans have been active for two decades, and over the course of their storied career, they've released a ton of great music and toured relentlessly at times playing a whopping 250 gigs a year. Their most recent release, Hannah, takes listeners back to where it all started for the quintet, as it was originally recorded in 2002, just weeks prior to the studio sessions for their debut full-length, These Are the Good Times. In the intervening decades, Mallerman and his bandmates shelved the tapes for Hannah. But during the pandemic, a chance connection with producer Zach Ships inspired them to dig them up and put the finishing touches on the tracks. The end product provides a glimpse of the band in its infancy and gives greater context to the work that followed it. During our interview, Mallerman reflected on the recording sessions for Hannah. What exactly inspired the band to resurrect the album at this time, what he learned about songwriting from Bob Pollard of Guided by Voices while on tour, and much more. Mallerman is also an accomplished horror novelist. His most notable work, Bird Box, was adapted into a Netflix film in 2018 starring Oscar-winning actress Sandra Bullock. So, Josh and I chatted about his writing as well, particularly how he reconciles creating sunny power pop tunes as a musician with the gory, scary narratives found in his books. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, you're listening to Look at My Records. Super excited to have Josh of the High Strung here. The band's new slash kind of old album, we'll get into that distinction there in just a minute, is out now. It's called Hannah. It's out via Park the Van. Josh, so excited to speak with you today. How are you doing? Outstanding. This is the first um, interview podcast discussion that I've done with Hannah so far. Um, so I'm like exceptionally eager to talk about these things and grateful to you, Tom, for, for having me on. Awesome. Very grateful that you're joining me to chat about the record. It sounds great, everyone. The story behind Hannah is really interesting. You recorded the album with your band, The High Strung, about 20 years ago. Prior to recording your official debut album, and then the record kind of got shelved. Uh, take us back. What exactly happened with this record? 
So we were we were living in New York for about four years, and that's where we became a band. And while we were there, we uh, we would record on this TIAC reel-to-reel machine, this awesome eight-track machine, and we recorded a couple EPs and uh, and a bunch of other weird stuff. And we were getting better at it. We were getting better at that machine. But about the time where we probably were in position to record an album of our own on that thing, we hit the road and we were touring for a lot. And in the course of touring, when we returned back to New York for a gig, we met a label, TP Records, and they um, said that they wanted to do something together. And we made a demo of the album, These Are Good Times, that we sent to them. That was fun, by the way. We recorded that on a four track. And it's also, it's cool to have a full band, like alternate version of an album that you end up doing in a real way. That's the only time we ever really did that. Anyway, TV wants to put out the album. So like, we're all prepared on those songs. We have no shows for a few months. We're a few months, like a, you know, there's a, we have a few months off before going in to record what will be our first real studio experience. And we're doing this in Detroit with Jim Diamond and we're so excited. But you know, if you got a lot of time off, what, what, what's the band gonna do? So we were like, hey, let's record some other songs on our machine. And it's sort of, some of it was like half ideas that we turned into songs and current ideas. Others were, let's write a song today and record it. And at the time, it just felt like um, we could tell that we were doing something that we felt was good. Actually, the best thing we had done up to then, we could tell. But we were going into the studio in, in two weeks or whatever. So what did this all mean, right? We go in with Jim Diamond. We make these are good times, you know. And then Hannah which is what we called the group of songs prior to going in. I mean, it just got naturally organically uh, swept under the carpet or lost into the folds of what was happening. We went in, we made this like studio album. It comes out, it's reviewed in Rolling Stone. We're touring like crazy. Um, the other songwriter of the band leaves the band shortly thereafter. He's back in the band now, but he left the band shortly thereafter, Mark. Um, so what are we going to do? Put out the album that Mark and you know I wrote and sang you know, it, it, Hannah, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. It was sort of like, let's move forward. We moved on to our next album. And then at what point are you like, hey, let's look back at that, at those group of songs that we recorded before These Are Good Times. Well, that moment turned out to be during the pandemic where we're all in lockdown and a lot of people are looking at old photos of themselves. You know, people are going through yeah. their stuff, right? And Chad wrote us, Chad, the bass player of the High Strong, wrote us saying, when's the last time you guys listened to Hannah? And we were like, oh man, I don't know, like 20 years or something, right? And we all listened to it and we were all like, oh my, this is, this might be the best thing we've done to date. And I think what it was, was at the time in 2002, we were more interested in being a rock band. You know what I mean? And Hannah, while it, it's definitely a rock band, it's more elastic, more expansive, more, um, more interesting sounds. It's not easy, as easily classifiable as these are good times. Well, but what's happened in the world, and you know this well, is, you know, there's a million different genres and a million different fans for all these different genres. In other words, there's room for everybody now and there's room for a place like, uh, for an album like Hannah now. So it almost makes more sense to me that we would be putting it out now. We all listen to it and then we had it uh, remixed and remastered by this brilliant dude named Zach Ships here yeah. in Detroit. 
And now here we are. So the way I, and that's a very long answer, I'm sorry, but the way I look at that is that we left ourselves a present, right? Because here's this album, not just like a collection of songs that were like ho-hum and hey, it's cool or it's funny. No, it's like a legit album that we left ourselves when the time came where we weren't allowed to get together to record or practice this lockdown, we had an album that we could work on and write each other about and get mixes from and now release. That is so interesting. And it kind of speaks to a lot of these unintended consequences or results of the last year and a half. Do you think this would have happened if not for the pandemic? Do you think you would have revisited this album in the same way? Or would this still kind of be, you know, you know, kind of not rediscovered quite yet? I, I, I don't think so, Tom. I think that I think it was because of that scenario, because if we were able to get together once a week or practice or work on new songs, then we would have been doing that, yeah. you know, and for that, nobody's mind would have been on Hannah. So not only did Chad, you know, did, did Hannah come out of this, but then it kind of now we're like, and we don't have to release it in the same big way, but now we're like, what about these other songs we have? And let's release those on Bandcamp, this and that. So it really became, um, thanks to Chad, really, he initiated this whole thing. Um, it became sort of like, hey, um, we've done, because we're, we're fairly prolific, and I am with yeah. the books also. It's like we've done enough here where we kind of like stored some food away, and now we can eat that. And, and now we're working on a new album now. But man, I'll tell you what, that Hannah experience like got us through some weird times in that. I mean, the whole world is going through weird times, right? In that, in the last couple of years to have like a group of songs with your best friends that you're thrilled about hearing the mixes and, and, and uh, you know, raise this harmony here a little bit. And oh, oh, Mark, those are great lyrics. And I mean, it was godsend, man, to have. Yeah. What do you remember about the recording sessions for this record from what you've described and what I've read about it? It sounds like it was a very low stress, organic, fun recording experience. What comes to mind when you reflect on that period in time? Well, a friend, it was in the Detroit area and a friend of ours, mom um, was out of town and we used and we recorded in her house in her living room. So all the gear was on the like, or on the dining room. In the dining room, the dining room table had this, you know, I mean, it's like a, like a nice suburban home or something, you know, and we were used to recording in this crazy, disgusting basement <laughs> in New York City, you know, yeah. so we have this, we have this real to real machine on this dining room table and all of our like weird gear and books and whatever. Um, the things that really come to mind are Derek, the drummer had to learn the songs like day of. So it'd be like, I, I, I really remember like, um, the feeling of like, uh, how close is Derek? How close are we to doing this? How, you know, we've gone through it four or five times. I think he's got it. Let's run it. Let's try it. Um, and I remember at the time him worrying about that and justifiably so, right? I mean, it's like if he had months to work on it, maybe he'd come up with the greatest thing, right? But we all felt like he was coming up with the yeah. greatest thing. And I think there's something to be said about um, not having those three months. And I've run into that same thing with books where sometimes, and you know this in all walks of life, we all do, sometimes what you do on the spot, that's the best, the best. thing you're going to do. Yeah. And like Derek, yeah, right? And like Derek, um, now he absolutely loves it. 
But I remember him being a little worried about that back then. That comes to mind. I remember Burko, Jason Berkowitz, playing acoustic guitar on certain songs and doing a major, major, having a major hand in the production of it all. Um, I remember, uh, I especially remember me overdubbing all my electric guitar parts. Um, and it's not something that I commonly think of when I think of albums. I typically think of the songs and like the vocal take and, and you know, you know what I mean? The, pr the production, the, the, the producing room and all that. And, but this one, I distinctly remember like being very conscious of adding guitar parts that felt more, um, less like jangly guitar and more like little riff lines, like dun, 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 like that versus jing a jing a jing a jing, you know? And I remember thinking that way and getting into that headspace of like, you can double track these cool small riffs. They don't have to be Jimmy Page. They don't have to be, you know, uh, King Crimson here, man. These, these little tiny, you can even just go dun, dun. If we double track that out of two speakers, it created this really fun um, effect that it felt like there was more going on in the band than there was. When I listen to Hannah, it almost sounds like there's a keyboard or something, but, but there's not. It's just guitar, bass, and drums. And there's something about that album, maybe it's because it's a little messy uh, recording, um, but I suspect it has more to do with when there's fuzz on the bass or this double track guitar riff or the acoustic guitar that suggests something more is happening in the band than, than there really is. Yeah, and you had mentioned that you hadn't heard these songs in 20 years. What was it like listening to them for the first time in so long? And do you remember your initial reaction? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so, I mean, all of us are like, you could argue, like artistic soulmates, right? We've all been best friends since we were like kids, really. Um, and we got serious in college and all this stuff, you know. So now I'm, you know, I'm 40 something years old, you know, for over 40 now. And, but Mark Owen, the other songwriter in the High Strong, him and I have been like writing songs for ages together and, and like still just as, I mean, last night, last night we were Facebook chatting about the next group of songs we could do and how excited we are about these, blah, blah, blah. So the first thing that came to mind when I heard Hannah was like, like listening to what Mark and I wrote at the time. You know, you know what I mean yeah. by that? Like there was a sense of like, wow, Owen really, really knocked this one out. And like, oh I, yeah, that was a good one. That, that was a good moment here that we had. And, or, or, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I could have sang the second line a little different, but who gives a, who gives a care, right? You know, that kind of stuff. But my, so my first reaction was sort of like an emotional, like, as if, honest to God, Tom, as if seeing a photo of yourself when you're younger, it was that same exact feeling of like, oh man, that was a hell of a day. And so it was like emotional, um, a little, not sad, but like um, a little overwhelming. And then very quickly that became, okay, you know what? Let, let, let's remix this. Let's remaster this. This needs to come out. Yeah, totally. And it's so interesting to listen to something like this, especially something you created with someone that you're so close with such a long time ago. And also the fact that you've written so many other songs in the period of time uh, that came after that. Was there any desire to like make changes after listening to the record, given the fact that you've 
gained so much songwriting experience in the intervening years and you've written so many other songs? Or did you really just want this to be representative of that period of time, that point in time for the band? That is a really great question, man. Um, there was one song where it's, um, I think it's one of the standouts called Cord Out Apple, where I remember at the time wanting the solo to just be more like jing, 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 uh, guitar rather than like a solo, right? And, but now listening to it, Derek wrote us like, hey, do you think maybe we should add like some sort of solo to that solo section of Cord Out Apple? And it was that moment where we were all like, no, 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 no. We're, no, we're not touching anything. We're not, we're not going in now. We're not re-singing something. We're not adding a keyboard. We're not adding percussion. We're, no, this, this is it. And it became dogmatic at that point. I have a book like that as well that I wrote during the pandemic live. Um, uh, what would you call it? As live as you can get, I serialized it on my website. And it's yeah. for free and it's on there, blah, blah, blah. But someone will ask, are you ever going to put Carpenter's Farm out in print form, and if you do, would you make changes? And I would say, I would respond the same way I'm responding about this, which is, that's that photo. I, yeah. You know, like, you know how, like, you take a photo of yourself now, and you might use the effect on Instagram or whatever, and that's, that's all right. But wouldn't you feel a little weird taking a photo from, like, 20 years ago and putting, like, filters or, a, like, what? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, that was then. Yeah, like, yeah. and that's what Hannah... And, and Carpenter's Farm, they both feel like, nope, that, that's them. But not, like, to a fault. If, if there was something, like, I mean, we didn't touch it. But if there happened to be something just absolutely atrocious, then I guess we probably would have just left it off the album. Yeah. How did Zach Ships uh, get involved in mixing uh, this record and, I guess, producing the record? And what was that process like as far as your involvement with him you know, he's he's uh, worked on great records with another uh, Michigan band, Electric Six. Um, what was your back and forth with him like during this uh, process of remixing and I guess remastering the recordings? Man, it was amazing. So, OK, a number of years ago, we put out an album, I Anybody, and we recorded it in our guitar player Steven's basement. Steven recorded it and we all loved it. But Steven was worried that it wasn't like quite there sonically or something. And I, I didn't hear it. And he was like, I know a guy that's really great. His name's Zach Ships. And he sent the album to Zach. Zach sent back his like first like stab at a song. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, I get it. I get it now. I mean, you listen to him side by side. And there was, Steven never had any intention of just releasing as it was. He would have beefed it up or whatever, done whatever to it. But he instead handed that off to Zach to do that. And I heard immediately the difference in that. So years later, we were talking about with Hannah. We're like, well, let's remix this. Let's set up the machine. Chad got the machine fixed. And we were going to like sit there and go through it again, right? And I don't know if it was Steven again or Chad. I don't, I don't remember which one. But one of them was like, hey, let's send this to Zach Ships like we did I Anybody. And... And I was like, okay. And then I was a little nervous because I did, for the same um, reason we were just talking about, I didn't really want it to come back with like super studio sheen. I, I kind of realized early on that I don't think that's possible with this album. <laughs> but you don't know at first. So when he sent back the first few things, we were like, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, this, this is definitely the right way to go. 
And Hannah as it is now, what you heard is, it literally is exactly what it was before, just like better. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound like, like he didn't add or fix or like change, you know, auto correct or anything. It's, the, it's exactly what it was, but just better, remixed, remastered. So Zach was unbelievable throughout the process because like, I mean, we, dude, we were like, raise the middle harmony a little bit, please, you know, and the way background stuff, you know. Uh, well, actually, can you lower it back down? I mean, we're talking like dozens of emails and suggestions. And and he, I would write him like, man, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I know we have a million. He's like, no, no, no. Like, honestly, like, I just want this to be the best it can be. And I'd be like, all right, all right, you know. And then after a while, you're like, wow, this guy really is a bit unflappable. Like, he literally, he, every single time, there was never an end point. You would think that you reached the end point. And you're like, God, I can't ask Zach to do another thing, right? <laughs> and then you'd be like, what? can you do this? And he'd be like, yeah, of course. And he'd send it back like in an hour. And you're like, wow, this guy's the real deal. He has the, not only the skill and talent and all that of a producer, but he has the temperament, man, of like working with a band that knows what they want to sound like or that kind of thing or has ideas. He's truly, truly magnificent at what he does. Remember I told you after this um after we talk, I'm, go- I'm running to the studio. Yeah. That, that's, I'm going to his studio. We're making, we're making an album with him right now. So I'm actually going to see him r- right after I see you. Awesome. That's super right after, exciting. Wait, I see you. I see you sounds like intensive care unit. Maybe I can phrase that differently. I'm going to see him right after we finish talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting. Super exciting <laughs> that there's another uh, record in the works. You kind of mentioned this a little earlier, which I definitely picked up on. I feel like on Hannah, you can hear this psychedelic pop influence, like more of a 60s psych expansive influence on it that I feel like wasn't as prevalent on the immediately the the releases that came immediately after you guys recorded Hannah, like these are good times and Moxie Bravo. Uh, but th- but then I feel like it kind of came back into your music again on Quiet Riots. You could definitely hear that. So I'm curious if was that an influence that you tried to like actively suppress after this uh, recording session, and then gradually you started to work it work it back into your songwriting. You know, as recent as uh, Quiet Riots. Uh, wh- what do you attribute that to? Well. Well, I mean, you may have just pointed something out that I hadn't realized at all. Mark leaves the band after These Are Good Times. Mark leaves the band. And when does he return? For Quiet Riots. And Mark is one of the two songwriters here, right? And I mean, obviously, before and, and now, not in between, obviously. But my point is, you're saying you hear a certain style or function in the Hannah that leaves... And returns, well, that's exactly Mark's timeline. Wow. So I've never really thought about it like that. I really haven't. And I'm going to tell him about this after. Um, I never really thought about that, that Mark might be more of our psych influence or something. Because the reason that seems like a strange thing to think is it's not like he's in the uh, practice space wailing reverbed out guitars or, or singing about like flower petals or something. It's not like he's like Mr. Psych or something. But at the same time... He loves the 60s as much as I do. And maybe him and I together 
like egg each other on more in that way than we do separately. Um, yeah, I missed it. I missed it. Um, I, I would argue that there's, you know, I would argue that there's elements of it in uh, Moxie Bravo and uh, Get the Guest. Totally, and, yeah. And I, anybody in this stuff. But but I know what you mean. They're, like Hannah has, a, um, it's not throwback. It's just a little more of that psych than the other ones and, uh, and Quiet Riots too. So I'm going to, if I have to attribute that to anything right now, I'm going to attribute that to Mark's return and and him and I egging each other on in that cool. way. Cool. So how did Mark wind up coming back into the band? Because I know he was present in the very beginning and you've known each other for a very, very long time. I don't remember the exact, like, how, other than I think he said he was moving back here. And I don't remember if he said, let's, you know, I'm going to join up with the band or if I, I, I guess I'm going to have to ask him either. He said, Hey, I'm, cause he's moving back to the Detroit area. Um, either he said, I would love to play with you guys again. Or I said, you should come play with us again. I don't remember, but either way it was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, there was never like <clears throat> when Mark left, I had, I was definitely like upset and like really sad but there was never like I hate this guy, yeah. you know. It was never like that. It wasn't like some something like that. It was more like I, well, me, Derek, and Chad were steering this like indie band on our own, and and I was like, oh god, I, what do we do now? And so there was a sense of a, like sort of immediacy of like we need to record something new that represents just the three of us because the three of us are going to be touring nonstop. That's when we made Maxi Bravo. That's our first without Mark. So there was never like. F this guy and blah, blah, blah. Like Mark and I made two, um, two of my favorite albums I've ever been a part of in the interim when he was gone. We just called them Mallerm and Owen. And, and the High Strung are still mining those two albums for songs. And, and so Mark and I made two albums in there. He would send me songs, new songs of his. I remember going to Chicago and playing him, I, anybody. He came to our shows. He played a show in the Detroit uh, area with Chad and Derek backing him up. So there was there was never like, if he wanted to come back, like, yeah, dude, the door's open. And with Hannah, this is a really gorgeous thing. Burko, Jason Berkowitz was in that original lineup as well. And with Hannah, with us remixing, we were discussing with him, and now Burko is back in the band as well, working on this new album with us. So started as five. Those two guys leave. We're three forever. Palmer, Steven joins, and now Mark and Burko are back. So Hannah has been like a real, um, it's been more than just like, hey, give us something to do. We're actually like, it's rekindled a lot of like relationships. Beautiful. That's very beautiful. And such a nice story for a great band. Happy to hear it. How right, yeah, how about you thanks. mentioned that you've toured relentlessly over the years with the High Strung. What do you love about touring? And are there any particular road stories that stand out to you from your years of being on the road? <laughs> yeah, my God. I'm, oh, my God. So many. We, we played some. Oh, man, like like it was. 240 250 shows a year for like six years something like that i don't know what it was we didn't have apartments we didn't really we had no real permanent residence we were just like on the road um it was magnificent man we were you know most nights we'd play for uh, literally whoever was there 
But then there were like some like peak nights where either it was a great turnout um, or we opened for a bigger band like Guided by Voices, yeah. like um, Sunvolt, um, where all of a sudden we're playing for like, oh my God, there's like a thousand people here, you know? So there are, there are standouts in that crowd sense and those shows are really memorable. Oh my God, I can't even imagine what... You know, uh, uh, like the Flaming Lips have that every night. I can't even imagine what that's like, right? I mean, I guess I can. I should I should say I can imagine and then and that it's going to happen with this new one. But the point is, the real memories, man, are like, we're playing for 20 people and the bar um, gave us not... Not pictures of beer, but pictures of mixed drinks. We're like, we're like, what, what do you, what do you mean a picture? Like, you each get a picture. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I like rum and coke, and then all of a sudden I have a picture of rum and coke. You, you see what I mean? Like, like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like those kind of memories, like, like driving through the desert, driving through the Lake Tahoe area, driving through L.A., driving uh, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, Oxford, Mississippi. We were touring so much that the country felt like it got smaller. It felt like it was like a, the size of a house and that each state was like a room. Or, yeah, yeah, it was like a room. Like Mississippi was a room and, and Oxford, Mississippi was like, you know, my favorite thing in that room or something, my favorite object in the room. And we, we would visit it all, uh, often. So that's the thing that really strikes me. Now, if I thought like, I'm gonna go to Salt Lake City right now, I'd be like, oh my God. I gotta go all the way to Salt Lake City. I gotta like plan all this. I gotta get my clothes. Back then it was like, let's go. And I'll read and write on the way. And then that's all that's all there is to it. So there that magical sense of like otherness, of being outside the norm, being under the radar, whatever you wanna, however you wanna phrase it, that feeling was magical and it did not matter how many people were there. You know, we were freaked out for not really, we made like not very much money in that time period, but dude, we got paid it mostly in drinks and uh, drinks and food. And we're playing our songs in a different city every night. I, I don't really know how to top that. I remember at one point turning to Derek and saying, whether we break up tomorrow or we sell 10 million albums tomorrow, I don't know if we'll ever top what we're doing right now. Just this total absolute freedom on the road and it, and it was absolutely it was gorgeous that said i don't i i can't even imagine doing that again right now i feel like i would have like a panic attack mental breakdown if i did yeah <laughs> it's a good transition point because you mentioned how you wrote so much while you're on the road um and I do want to talk about some of your novels, short stories, your different pieces of uh, fiction. Um, you wrote Bird Box while you were on the road. Um, on the road, you're seeing lots of different new places, different things, instead of just writing in the surroundings that you're used to uh, at home or like that, which is what I feel like most people that are writing fiction or novels are probably hunkered down at home writing them so if at all how do you think being on the road while you were writing your novels influenced your writing at all given the fact that you're in new settings and surroundings you know on a regular basis i've never I, you're gonna think it's crazy that i've never thought of it that way but i i, I hadn't um bird box actually though was written i 
Um, it was the rough draft was in 06 and I was renting um, the third floor of this awesome house. It's Derek's now wife's mother's house and I was renting the third floor and it was incredible. Um, that bird box session was amazing. But the, the books on the road was there was decorum at the deathbed. There was howl song. There was a lot of goblin. There was not Wendy. There was um, a woman, a woman, a window. There was I mean, there was probably six or seven on the road. Yeah. I mean, literally between cities. What happened was the first book I wrote was when that was when, right after Mark left the band and we had a few months off, right? And Mark and I had been talking forever about trying to write novels and trying to, you know, egg each other on to finish one or to write one. And we had tried and this and that. And so what happened was I wrote Wendy when at a coffee shop over, you know, 20 something days, then the high strung go back on the road, right? <clears throat> what I recognized with Wendy was that I needed a daily routine in order to write a novel. So where would that fit on, fit in on the road? Well, there's one spot and you could say when you get to the bar, uh, you sit aside for an hour and a half and you write, but we were driving an average of like four and a half hours a day this whole time. And the writing session was about three hours every day. So it suddenly became for me like, hey, man, Derek loves driving. Chad's reading or practicing the bass in the back. And you're in the passenger seat. You can either re uh, you can read a book. You can talk to Derek. You can listen to music. You can look out the window. Or you can use this time to write. This could be your yeah. session. And so it became that. It became uh, those the, from city to city. I mean, I distinctly remember... You know, I'd be writing a novel and look up and see like 120 miles to, you know, Boise. And I'm like, okay, I got like, you know, like an hour and a half, two hours, and I still got to finish this scene. Uh, so many moments like that. The the difficult part of that experience, but I mean, a good stuff came out of it. So who cares? I don't know why I always say this, but, but like Derek would be listening to like, you know, The Grateful Dead or something, who I love. And... And it's like, it's not the easiest thing in the world to write a horror story while Jerry yeah. Garcia is singing. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can pull that stuff off, then you are really doing something right. But I do wonder, because there was one moment or one time I remember where the van broke down. We were in the South and Derek was fixing it. And Chad and I were out by the back of the van. And I remember I was looking over at this, like, sort of at this swamp. And I started thinking like, um, what if like, not that there was a monster or a creature in the swamp, but what if the actual angle at which I'm looking at this swamp was somehow alive? Meaning here we are, the van breaks down and we encounter a perspective that is alive, right? So that, I wrote that entire novel and that's an idea that came because we had a few minutes to think while the van was broke down in the road. And I, I think, you know, Black Mad Wheel uh, it is based on a band, but I, I want to write a book that's really like about our band, but or at least based more on us, that kind of thing. But the point is, there's no question what you asked. There's no question that books were inspired by being in different places and this and that. And I'm and it's making me think that maybe you know Allison, my uh, fiance, and I maybe we need to get out a little bit more, um, or the band should tour a little bit more because I think I could use a recharge. Um, in the way that you're, the, the way that you put it in your question. Very cool. That's such a cool story about how that idea 
was born out of the van breaking down. Very, very cool. A little more on your writing as a novelist. What I think is so cool is that it's starkly different from the high strung in its tone and themes. And so do you see this as like a completely different outlet of expression for you? And what spurred that desire to write fiction within the realm of horror? Because when I listen to the high strung, you know, it seems, you know, it doesn't really seem dark to me, the music at all. It's this great, nice sounding power pop. Yeah, it's it's a funny, uh, it's a thing that I, from the word go, um, uh, when Mark and I, or I write songs, um, I'm bent obviously this way. And when I write books or stories, I'm a hundred percent bent that way. And so there was something kind of early on where I was like, man, what, what is like, there's a big chasm between these two. Yeah. But then I really, really thought about it and I'm like, actually, is there, and here, here's, here's my thinking on that. There's a, there's a glorious sort of arrested development in writing horror. There's a childishness. There's a, there's a almost maintaining some like teenage self about it, right? And that doesn't mean um, that you're not growing up. That doesn't mean you're not getting wiser. But to maintain the enthusiasm for ghosts, witches, demons, dark corners, like these kind of like 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 brooding moods or whatever, is that really that different than maintaining the enthusiasm for all these like amazing songs and bands that you heard? when you were really introduced to, like when you were a teen. And so to me, I, I actually do see a bond or a link between rock and roll and horror. Yeah. Now you could say like the more rock and uh, horror rock would be like the Misfits or Alice Cooper or, or even like metal, right? Like heavy metal, like super dark shit. But I don't think it has to be so on the nose. The high strung is still rock and roll. And we were like, and we tour like crazy and you know, we, uh, uh, well, here, this comes to mind is I remember Mark told me once, and it was really funny, uh, that if he put like a patch chord to his mind, it would sound like death metal. But the songs he writes are these like gorgeous little, you know, like, like, I don't want to say pop songs, but lyric driven, like pop yeah. songs, you know? And, it, and I, and I laugh because I'm like, dude, I totally freaking agree where it's like, like the inside is like ah, but then we're like a ding ding a ding ding a ding ding a ding. What is the link between you know the Kinks and Mario Baba for me? I think that they're both super colorful, and one is a pop song, and one is a horror like a horror movie director, right? And I think that's what it is for me: is that both are playful, both are imaginative, both are um, I don't want to say childish but there's a wonder to them both and when you look at it from that angle it's like oh shit these two make a lot these two are total compatible bedfellows really interesting perspective and take on it that's really cool to hear your perspective on it in a way that i never thought about it but makes complete total sense you tell me about the experience oh. of having Bird Box turned into uh, a Netflix movie. That must have been totally surreal and amazing. What was that like for you? And any cool moments that really stand out in that process? Oh my God, dude! Yeah, it was unbelievable, man. Like, 
you got to realize, okay, the high strung and Owen and I and writing all these songs, I'm talking about like the writing side of it, writing all these songs. And then on the road with Derek and Chad forever and with Steven forever. And all this time I'm writing novels too. And I didn't get a book deal until I was, hmm, 37. Yeah, 37 years old. The book, my first book, Bird Box, doesn't come out until I'm 39 years old. And by this point, I've been writing songs and, and books for 20 years. I've had like a gazillion experiences, many of which we're talking about now. And, you know, suddenly in 2019, like a movie, or I guess it was being made in 18. So that's when Allison and I like were invited on set. And, and we, you know, we went to LA and I was so freaking nervous, man. I don't even, oh my God, was I scared. I'll give you a really great story. So we went on set. And we watched like a whole day of filming and it was like, it was like 14 hours or something. And the second half of it was in like a sound studio. And, and like, on the, just like, you know, in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, we ride the bike through those sound studios. It was like that area. And we're in one of those buildings and they're filming the scene where Sandra Bullock and uh, Sarah Paulson are like spinning in the car. If you saw the movie. Yeah, yeah. That, they did that for like seven hours. And it's, their area's lit up and Everyone else, me, crew, uh, other cast members, people, everyone else is in like the shadows surrounding, the, even the food cart. It's all in the shadows surrounding that lit up area. So we're watching this over and over and we're kind of being quiet and eating and having coffee and whatever. And then at some point, the, the day ends and the, one of the producers walks up to me. He's like, hey, Josh, there's someone I want you to meet. And I was like, oh, boy. Like, I'm about to meet Sandra Bullock. Like, I was like, what the hell is going on right now? And he walks me through the dark, through these people and crew. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm about to meet Sandra Bullock. What's going on right now, you know? And he walks me out under the bright lights. Sandra Bullock is in Mallory costume wardrobe. You know, the makeup like you would wear in a movie, whatever. Standing there. And then the producer and everyone else just kind of steps back into the shadows. And I'm meeting Sandra Bullock under the bright lights of what is essentially a stage. And I was like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. I mean, this is unbelievable. Like, I'm not just, I'm not meeting her, which would be amazing in and of itself to meet her at a bar or something. No, I'm meeting her under bright lights, like as if her entire life is a stage. And I stepped onto it for that moment to meet her. And she was immediately funny, immediately nice, um, she like she was like self-deprecating, but in a funny way. <laughs> we talked for a minute, and then at the buzzer, and then at the buzzer, Tom, at the freaking last second, I was like, "Oh, but you got to meet uh, my fiance, Allison." And I and I pulled Allison over, and they met. And to this day, I'm like, "Woo!" Like I was that close to like just like walking away and being like, "Wasn't that amazing, Allison?" And then I was like so glad that I like thought of. I'm just really glad that I thought of Allison in that moment. And I was like, you gotta meet Allison. <laughs> because I was like in the clouds. I had no foot on reality in that in that moment. So that moment was unbelievable. It must have been so surreal. So surreal to have something that you, you know, poured from your mind onto paper, you know, 15 years before that, come to life in front of you in right. a production like that. It was mind-bending. We we saw the movie in the Netflix like headquarters building in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And it was this little theater room called the Upside Down. That was the name of the theater, like the room, screening room. And the movie pretty much opens 
with Mallory uh, on her knees, like telling the kids, like we're going on the river today, like all that, right? Just like the book opens. I, dude, I like teared up. I had the chills like you wouldn't believe. I didn't even understand what was going on. When people ask me what I thought of that movie, I, and I like, unironically, like I say to them, like, listen, I'm, I might be the worst person in the world to ask that because from my angle, I'm so freaking glad it happened. And I'm so grateful that it happened. Like, who the fuck cares if this or that was changed a little for it? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, I, I was just out of my mind happy and still am about the entire thing here. I know this is audio, but here is the popcorn box from the, from the <laughs> premiere. That's amazing. I still have it like on my shelf. Yeah. I know it looks pretty sweet, yeah, it's right? Very cool. I almost, I almost, weird, yeah, I almost weird, wish in a weird gross way that it was still full of like the popcorn or something. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but yeah, so that was, I mean, there's a million stories from this, like, backstage meeting uh, again Sandra Bullock and the whole cast uh, before we all walk out at the premiere at Man's Chinese Theater in LA I mean like this is the real thing right and like and then uh oh the after party at the, from the premiere in New York when we're all at this like boathouse in Central Park and we're all like completely wasted including like the cast and director everyone were out of our mind drunk I mean so many wonderful unbelievable things from that night from the whole experience it's like like i mentioned before uh when the movie came out i must have been what 41 right or something like that it was only a couple years ago right so so the point is like had this happened when i was like 20 i don't think that i would have been some pig-headed jerk but i don't know that i would un have understood like and been as grateful for it as I am now. And I, I can't stress that enough, man. Like, the ultimate thing for me is writing songs, writing books. That's it, that's number one. That has to keep going no matter what. Anything upon that, relationships made from it, um, success in it, money made, um, uh, what you and I talking right now, that's all fantastic. Nothing tops the writing, but I am unbelievably grateful for every single element that happens like upon that base that basis of writing and so a movie with sandra bullock the audrey hepburn of our generation yeah man i'm like out of my mind about it yeah it's must it sounds like it was an incredible experience and as you mentioned you know if it had happened when you were 20 obviously it would have been a completely different experience but you have that perspective of having put in years and years of hard work before kind of reaching that point. So it really makes it that much sweeter. But also, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But also, I just, I, I want to point this out, like, you know, hard work, yes, but not all toil, like joyful yeah. hard work, right? With your best friends, writing songs, playing, like I was saying before, at some of those gigs, you know, Whoever showed up, I mean, more often than not, there was like 20 people there. Great, let's roll. Let's play these 10 songs that we wrote, that we learned, like Chad's on his knees going nuts and Derek's like, um, you know, just absolutely tearing it apart and the funniest uh, MC between songs ever. And, and, I, and I'm singing these songs. So yes, hard work, no doubt about it. But at the same time, like joyful, joyful, rewarding work. And, and obviously on the book side too. Totally. So your newest book, Pearl, is out now. 
You also just mentioned that the High Strung is working on a new record. What's next for you and the band as well? <clears throat> Pearl is out now. Hannah is out. Um, and we I don't know when this album that we're working on now, I don't even know what it's going to be called yet. I don't know when it'll be done, um, when it'll come out. But I'm, I, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just really glad that we're making this. And with Mark, obviously Mark's in the band again, but with Burko also, um, it just feels like everyone's in the room that should be in the freaking room, you know? Um, I have a book called Ghoul and the Cape that is coming out in December. And then I have a book called Daphne that is coming out next year. And Daphne's a scary one, man. And, um, and that's like the immediate future for me and for the band. Very, very exciting. Lots of fun, awesome, exciting things on the horizon for you and the band. And with that, we are now going to play a couple of tracks from Hannah. Everyone, you can get a copy of Hannah on limited edition vinyl via thehighstrung.bandcamp.com. Right now, we're going to hear Tip of the Iceberg, Beautiful Summer, and I, I, I.
Alright everyone, we just heard three songs from the High Strung's new release, Hannah We Heard. Track 2, Tip of the Iceberg, followed by tracks 5 and 8, Beautiful Summer and I, I, I. Everyone, you can get yourself a copy on limited edition yellow vinyl via the highstrung.bandcamp.com. The album is out now via the great label, Park the Van. Now, we're going to play some records and talk about them. All right, Josh. Yeah. First up, Smothered in Hugs by Guided by Voices off of B-1000, widely considered you know, their best record. And you've toured and played shows with Robert Pollard, another prolific uh, tourer and writer. Uh, certainly, I know you're, you're into being prolific as well as far as writing songs and writing uh, fiction as well. And so Robert Pollard, one of the most prolific songwriters ever. 
Uh, what was the what was it like playing shows with Guided by Voices, dude? It was like meeting kindred spirits, man. Um, I didn't know that much about them prior. I um, in our hometown, well, where, I'm sorry, in our college town, uh, East Lansing, when I would see on the calendar, Guided by Voices were coming. This is like in the early '90s, right? And I remember thinking that it was like some religious band name. You know what I mean? I didn't know, you know, guided by voices, right? I didn't really know much about them. And our friend, uh, Chad, actually, and his friend were into four-track recording. And so then that got me and Mark into four-track recording. And then Mark and I had like 200 songs. And then I hear about this band that made like albums, released real albums recorded that way, you know, on the four-track cassette and all that. You know, like just mind-bending shit, right? They, Bob Pollard is one of my favorite human beings I've ever met. The, uh, the intelligence is off the charts. The energy is off the charts, but there's like a warmth to him. There's a, there's a joy and a fun and a celebration to him. Like you hear about bands that drink a lot or do this, you know, uh, tour a lot or, or put out and you almost picture this chaotic, dark darkness or saying, no, 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 not, 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 not with this guy. This guy there's, it's like every show is a celebration and every album and and you get there, he absolutely knows what I was talking about earlier about that you can grow and become a wise man but you can still have that arrested development at the same time and and cherish it he would absolutely understand what I mean by that and he um he opened doors for me man you know in terms of uh writing and just like the spirit of things where he told me once that sometimes he tries to write a song where like he'll start the song in this chord and whatever chord he goes to next, whether it works or not, that's now how the song goes. And I was like, wow, wait, <laughs> what? So, you know, like, yeah, like here, can I, let me show Let's try that real fast. Ready? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we'll just sing, look at my records. Right. And, and we'll, we'll try like a weird We'll try like a weird uh, change. So it's in G. Look at my records. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that changed. Look at my records. Da, 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 da. Look at my records. Right? And like, that's it. Now that's the song. Done. Let's roll. Let's, let's finish the lyrics. Let's... And he told me that he sometimes acts that that you sometimes write songs that way where whatever the first thing that came to mind that's it that's the song and that opened doors for me it was like like don't don't be hey josh don't be so um and not that I ever was but don't be so strict on where it goes or whatever like this one can go this angle and it's a new change for you it's a different style for you and that makes your canon that widens your canon that um stretches who you are as a as an artist so that he was unbelievable and he's one of my you know, all time and smothered in hugs. Woo. That is the ultimate to me in terms of the sludgy, lo-fi, holy shit sound of God of my voices. I mean, I don't even, I think the bass player misses like most of the changes. I mean, if I remember he misses a few of them at least, I mean, it's just a total sludge fest on the low end. And then upon that is one of the most like gorgeous, ascending melodies I've ever heard in my entire life. And it just keeps walking up and getting bigger and stronger and beautiful until it like reaches that, 
that that peak. And that was the song where I was like, oh, oh, wow, this guy, this is a like genius level that this guy's operating at. It was smothered in hugs. Love you, Bob Pollard. He is a motherfucking genius for sure. Next, Hope for Happiness by The Soft Machine off of their 1968 self-titled record. Big fan of all the Canterbury scene bands and Robert Wyatt as well. And this is some trippy shit for sure. So for me, this one is a standout because Derek, the drummer in the High Strung, introduced me to this. I think he had it on vinyl. I Maybe... I'm almost positive he had it on vinyl. Either way, it was, and I was playing organ in the earliest of the days with, with like playing music and stuff. So not only did it have all these amazing organ parts and this amazing high, weird voice, but so early in songwriting to experience something like that, which was like prog, but accessible. See, that that I think that in a way, all five songs I picked are, something but also accessible also palatable so like smothered in hugs is sludgy and lo-fi but also palatable yeah hope for happiness is proggy and what is going on but also palatable and so when derek by derek introducing that to me so early and derek was sort of my um intro to really all all things music i mean he introduced me to the ramones uh i mean even the even like in a real way the beatles Stones like Derek. Derek knew his shit way, way before I did. Way before, and so that is a seminal moment for me. Falling in love with that song and hearing it and being like, "This is like crazy." Like imagine like playing that for like a a, a seventeen year old right now, or eighteen year old, oh, yeah. in like you know, high school. Like, hey, they'd be like, literally, they wouldn't understand what they were hearing. And and Derek presented that to me in a way of like, "This is badass." And that said to me that something like this could be badass. And like the doors were like further open. Absolutely love that song. Metronomic Underground Ground by Stereolab off of their classic record, Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Okay, so this one I picked because, um, first of all, I just want to say during the um, cast that your collection is unbelievable and it was not easy picking five. Um, I wanted to pick 400. Truly, truly unbelievable. Um, but the high strong, or at least Derek... Chad and I, I, I don't know if Mark and Burko went. I, but we went to see Stereo Lab live when we lived in New York City. And, and this song was our favorite at the time. And they played it. And it was, they may have even opened with it. I don't remember, though. And the thing that was mind-bending about this song was it was my first experience with layering. Yeah. Like hearing, like, th this is quintessential, like, layering. You start with this, this little thing. Then you add this part. Then this layer, it was almost like listening 
to an album or a song being made. Here's the drums. Here's the bass. Here's the guitar. Here's the organ. Here's the something else sound. Here's the vocals. And we keep just building from there. And Chad was way into that sort of thing, layering and looping and like, and again, I mean, what year is that album? Like late 90s, 96, mid 90s? yeah, I think. What year is that one? 96. So <clears throat> again, I'm a young songwriter. I'm thinking of things in terms of G, C, G, you know, whatever. And you hear this kind of thing and it expands your horizon. Like, you know, let's think a little bit. You, you could say that a song like that is art rock, but it's still palatable. And so, again, the doors open a little wider. Yeah, because it's interesting because it's it reminds me of kind of your ethos with the high strung, too, because it's so palatable, the music. But as you said, at different points in time, it gets more experimental and exploratory with the idea that, you know, it's palatable. It's it's pop, too. You know, it's pop, not in like. Yep. bubblegum pop but it's like pop you know it's good pop right solid pop songwriting i think one of the most like famous examples of what we're talking about would be tomorrow never knows um i think it would be like one of the most you know in terms of loop layer but still somehow a pop song and 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 the word pop can get um i can be derided you know it, that could be a real nasty word in certain company like we write pop songs oh god that sounds terrible right like, like, what, what do you mean? Like, you're like, what does that mean? Are uh, you like in sync or something? But then it's like, no, there's a, there's a brill building sensibility. There's a early Neil Diamond, right? Songwriter sensibility to writing pop songs that is similar to me to like writing horror novels where it's more like, like, can you pull this off in a, in a fun way? Can you scare someone in that book? Can you pull off an amazing song in this Brill building, like I'm going to write a hit or whatever. And uh, Emperor Tomato Ketchup, like just that one, that one was the one for me where I was like, there's not even any changes here, dude. There's no changes. It just keeps layering. Totally. That's mind bending. Yeah, I totally, totally <laughs> mind bending. Totally agree with everything you just said as well. Next up, we got On a Plane by Nirvana off of Nevermind. Okay, I chose this one because I think it's like the second to last song on the album or something of this unbelievable album that, you know, I was 16 when it came out. So this was like, you know, my mom was that age with the, with the Beatles or something, right? Like this was like, what is going on? This is brilliant. But that song, the melody of that song to me is like exactly what I'm into where it starts here and it walks down to here, but there's this triumphant next like uh chorusy part and and the playful, you know, they mess around a little before the song begins. I also love that the song just starts right away with the melody, like like right away. And it's like this guy, this is beyond I remember recognizing this at 16. 
that this was beyond like rock and roll. There was like uh, a playful imagination, a playful mind at work here. So I chose that one because it was landmark for me before I started writing songs, but it showed me like, here's this, he's the most badass dude in the world at that moment to me, right? I mean, his, his yelling voice and his weird, like um, tantalizing lyrics, you know? And they're the most famous band in the world. And meanwhile, there's this little song, second to last on their Genius album that like, that is like the poppiest, but at the same time, coolest like little slide I've ever heard, Melody. So I absolutely, I listened to that album, by the way, before this, um, before we met up today. Because I was singing that song because I sent you the five songs. I was singing it, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go listen to that whole album. And it was while I was getting ready to meet up with you, and it, it sounded unbelievable on, on the record playing the other room. Last, Why Can't I Touch It by the Buzzcocks. Total uh, great example of kind of what we've been talking about, about what masters of pop the Buzzcocks were, were kind of, you know, under the guise of punk almost, but they're really just like Ray Pop yeah. songwriters. Yeah, absolutely. So I chose that one and I didn't, everything I chose was sort of in relation to the high strung or me as a songwriter, and this one. So after a while on the road, you know, Mark and I sing, at least we did then, like sing like super high. And there's this sort of, like you said, power pop sensibility beneath those higher vocals. And people would bring up the buzzcocks to us a lot. They're like, you guys kind of remind us of the buzzcocks and this, and I didn't know enough about them. And so finally we're, we're like, we listened to them. And that song blew our lids so much that we record, we did a cover version. We would do it live, but we recorded a version, like, like drums, bass, guitar, like singing, like uh, how often do you record a cover in, in this day and age, right? And we really tried our hardest and this and that, and we would play it. And there's a bit of everything in that one. There's the loop vibe of the dun but then it has the amazing change and his voice is just soaring and the lyrics are super awesome. Yeah, the Buzzcocks, you said it better than I am saying it now. The Buzzcocks are emblematic of almost everything we're talking about with the other songs, which is under the guise of something else, under the guise of psych, under the guise of pop, under the guise, or guise of punk, here is a pop or a palatable totally. song. A lot of P's in that. All right, Josh, so great chatting with you today about Hannah, the new record, 
by the high strung. Also really great talking about your novels and all your different writings as well. Uh, your latest Pearl is out now as well. And stay tuned. More books and music from the high strung are on the horizon. Thank you so much, Josh, for chatting with me today. Hey, Tom, thank you so much. Um, I would love to talk to you down the road. Um, and, and if we're ever in the same vicinity, I would love to get a drink together and discuss music till we're blue in the face. Um, but thank you. This was my first, um, like I said, my first discussion about Hannah so far with anyone. And going through your record collection and hearing your questions, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and to meet you and thank you thank i speak for all the high strung when i say thank, thank you, you and i speak for myself when i say i love the high strung and you as well josh <laughs> awesome all right everyone we're sending you off with one final track from hannah this one's called turned it away and again get yourself a vinyl copy via the highstrung.bandcamp.com Walked out the door